Grab your popcorn and snacks. Find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Good morning, everybody. My hat's even on crooked. How's everybody doing this morning? I know it's mid-afternoon for some people. Uh, my name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour or so. Um, we've got a great show lined up for you today. Waiting for Roger to come into the chat room. Let me get my little buttons pushed here. There we go. Anyway, I am the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We are 45 strong up and down the state. And that means that we can get to you. If, if you, know, you know, no, no matter where you're at in the state of California, we we can get to your place, you know. And one thing about our team that uh, is unlike other teams is that when we go in to do an investigation, we don't just look for paranormal stuff. We are looking for logical stuff. So we're going to go through and we're going to look at uh, electrical wiring and things like that in your house. And, and you know, just to make sure that uh, there's, not, there's nothing else going on, plus medical, you know, things like that. So we're very thorough with what we do. So if you, uh, if you feel you have a paranormal need, uh, contact me. And that would be through CaliforniaHaunts.org, CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com, Facebook. You can find California Haunts on Facebook. You can find me on Facebook. And, uh, yeah, you can do that. I see Roger's in the green room. Give him a quick wave. Let him know. <laughs> he can probably hear me. Uh, tonight, today's show. Boy, I'm excited about it tonight because I'm used to being on at night. I'm so excited about this. And I'm gonna I'm gonna admit something to everybody, and and uh, and I'll probably get you know yelled at by the Star Wars folks. In that, I was not a Star Wars fan when Star Wars first came out. I was not a Star Wars. I, I'm a trek. I'm a trekkie. Okay, I'm a trekker. And so I was probably around twenty something years old when Star Wars came out. Maybe younger. I don't quite remember, but I remember that. Um, I can honestly say I thought it was all silly. I really did. And what got me into it, and this is funny, the last probably 10 years, because my friend would buy me Star Wars Legos. And that's how I got into it. I had the first Lego was that was the big ad ad. I think it's the I think it's the big ad ad. I call them Imperial Walkers. And that was the one with the batteries in it. So it it, it would walk. You know, it was it was a real big one. That's what got me into it. Then I, then I got the Death Star, and then, then it went from there. And then I became a Star Wars nerd. So, actually, I'm a tricky and a Star Wars nerd. All right. The other thing, too, that got me into this, and I, I don't talk about this very often. When I was younger, um, a friend of mine lived in Hollywood, and she met a gentleman who worked for Rick Baker. And this gentleman, Rob Oteen, had worked on the first Star Wars film. He had done the... Uh, makeup effects and creature effects for the can went along with rick baker for the cantina scene and it was cool because i got to take a tour of his studio because at that time he was working on different because back that that's when the slashing gash was really popular so he was doing a lot of slashing gash stuff he worked on the first halloween as well and i remember his studio was in pasadena and he took me over there and i got to see all this really cool stuff that i've seen in some movies you know because he had all these creatures and all this so it was really cool you know and so and like i said i wasn't a big star wars fan back then but i was really impressed by the makeup effects that's what that's what got me into going to college to study makeup 
and makeup effects. And that led to me building sets. So I was building sets and, you know, and uh, I did some shows and whatnot. And, and it was kind of cool, you know, but I, I learned to build sets, practical sets, the other kind of sets. I always laugh because I still have my stagecraft book here in my family because I live alone. And my brother-in-law is a contractor. And we're forever la he's forever laughing at me because I will fix things. I will fix things the movie way. I will fix things the, the way one does for a play. But I can fix things. If my if my door jams fall off, I'm there. If I need if <laughs> if I need French doors, I'm there. If I need to stucco a wall, I'm there. I know how to do it. Except I do it for stage. I do it for stage and film. <laughs> and the only difference is that instead of using light wood for stuff like you do on a, like you do on a set. I'm using real good wood to, to fix stuff. But I mean, other than that, I'm there. So I'm excited to have this gentleman on. I really am to talk Star Wars, to, to talk about the sets with him. Because it's it's no, you know, it's, it's, it's no small undertaking. And I'm also a person, and he's a set decorator. And I have props in this house. My Halloweens are just fabulous. So are my Christmases. I have props all over my house, all over my backyard. I have sheds full. And I remember one time, we had some people working on our bathroom and our, and our, and our plumbing of course runs along the ceiling. And back then I used to store bodies in my attic. And I only have like, I don't have a big attic. I have a crawl space up there and I used to store bodies up there. And this poor guy, there, there was a leak somewhere. This poor guy had to go up into the attic and I was at work and I forgot to tell my mother to tell him about the bodies. <laughs> and the poor guy, my mother says he came down he was screaming. Okay, because I mean these things. When I get done with them, they, they look real. Okay, so there were body parts up up in my attic, and this guy was just freaked. You know, here he, here he's up there with a little pen light, looking around up there, and boom, you know, that's what he runs into. So I mean, yeah, I've been into that the movie stuff for a long time, and so when you talk about set decoration and props, I can create just about any anything from what I have. You know. But anyway, uh, without further ado, I'm going to shut up now, and I'm going to bring my guest on, and he has an interesting story to tell, and I'm going to let him tell you his story, and then we're going to talk to him about how how he was able to do this and how creative he can get, because, I mean, when you're working with studios and stuff, there's big prop departments. I always loved it. Go to Universal Studios, and what do they do? They they drive you through the through the prop department, and it's just it's mind-boggling when you see the props that you can use for decoration and stuff that you have. But sometimes, as in the case of something like Star Wars, their sets, just, you know, the, the stuff they have for set decoration just isn't enough. So you have to get really creative, and this is what this is what this gentleman does. So I'm going to bring him on. All right. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Nice to meet you. Now that I'm long-winded, are you awake now? <laughs> yes, I'm here. I'm listening. <laughs> I like the body story. <laughs> <laughs> that poor guy. My mother says he screamed. I bet. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me about you. You have a fascinating background. Um, well, I came into the film industry trying to get a job. I didn't know anyone. It was just I, I by chance, saw um, the first James Bond movie being shot. I was putting up marquees as a student trying to earn money. And we saw a prison camp in the forest and I went to see what it was. And they said, oh, no, it's a film set. And I said, but this is really real. And they said, it's so real. We have a hobo 
homeless man come by every day and feed us. <laughs> so <laughs> I said, well, what is this for? I knew nothing about films. You know, I was a kid from Reading in England and had no, no comprehension that movies were even made. And um, I got under the fence and it was Pinewood Studios and I saw the doors were open and they were shooting a James Bond scene, one of the first ones. And it was like Holy Grail struck me. And then I was in the prop room and there were gold bars. And I was going, oh, but look, these are just plaster. This is all pretend. I got to do this. So it took me two years of architecture school and nobody would respond to me. One producer kindly wrote back out of all my letters and said, look, you're in art school. Why don't you try to go in the art farm? It'd be easier. And, and I managed to get an interview somehow. and the film when i saw the film that really really did it for me it was dr Shivago. we went as art students to london and watched it in the odeon leicester square on the huge screen and i literally had a bout of body experience with the music and everything it had happened to me in childhood and there i was and i said this is destiny my first interview was with the designer who did the ice palace for Dr. Zhivago. So here, Destiny is kind of joining the dots for my journey. And um, Charlie looked at all my work and he said, listen, I can't take you on. We're just finishing the TV series, but I will be doing another one and I'll take you on. But I've made an appointment for you. Drive to Shepparton tomorrow. And I had a moped. That's the only transport I could afford. I drove all the way to Shepparton Studios with my folder and met John Box, who designed Dr. Zhivago. And he looked at my work and he said, I'll take you on if you'll make the tea for the art department. And I said, whatever you want, I don't care. I'll do anything. So I got this job. For, I, it was about £10 a week. And um, But John was one of the most wonderful mentors I think I've ever had. He looked after me. He opened my folder of work, architecture and art, and he closed it up and he said, here's the story of the film industry. You're in the desert. You've got a bottle of green ink in your pocket. In comes a cloud of dust. There comes a director, the producer. Wow, this is great. Location's perfect. Can you have the airplane you're standing next to read by tomorrow morning? And you do it or you talk your way out of it on the spot with an alternative. That's the film industry. And that's guided me through my entire career <laughs> and you know i worked my way up until we were working in um, john barry was a designer they were on a huge movie called lucky lady starring um, lisa Manelli and burt reynolds and gene hackman and it had um, gotten completely out of control there were 50 boats fighting it was rum running in the 20s they needed extra help. There were only three of them in the art department. I went out and was dressing sets. So this film was written by Gloria and Willard Hike. They wrote American Graffiti for George, and they did some of the um, dialogue for Star Wars for him. They told George when Fox... You know, all the studios turned Star Wars down. I think it's common knowledge, except for Alan Ladd Jr. and went against his board and said, no, I believe in this kid. We should do it. They then said, well, this film's going to make $12 million. So, and that was science fiction at the time. There was no box office. No one wanted to right. see science fiction in cinema. 
they said, we'll give you a third. If you can make your movie for $4 million, we'll give you the money. And so in England, we were half the price exactly of America, and the budget was reckoned to be $8 million. There were no studios free in Hollywood. The studios in Britain were half, mostly empty. There was It was a time you know, when nothing was, was happening. So George flew down, met John Barry and myself. I was dressing a salt factory. He picked up a shovel. This is George, typical, and shoveled salt with me while we talked. And he said, you know, I'm trying to do a spaghetti western in space. And I said, well, that's music to my ears because I don't relate to any science fiction film that's been made so far. They're all fake and unreal, and the sets are some weird futuristic design. I, I think it should be like an old car in a garage that's dripping oil and repaired by the owner. Little did I know at the time, I was describing exactly the Millennium Falcon that he'd written. And um, John was the first person hired on Star Wars, and I was the third. And then Fox would not commit to greenlight it. So George, with money he was owed, we hired a little tiny studio in London. There was just John Barry, myself, and Les Dilly, and Robert Watts, the, the controller, and George and Gary. And we were in this tiny little studio with no money. They had no money to give us. <laughs> John Barry, who was the second most genius designer and, and human being I've ever worked with, and, and uh, George owes a lot to John on how this film got made. Um, he said, you know, R2-D2, we'd worked out from Ralph McQuarrie's drawing paintings of C-3PO and R2-D2 was four foot high. There was no CGI. This doesn't exist. This came in way later. Radio control was really primitive at that time. You couldn't rely on it. And we were going to be way in the desert in sand dunes. He said, you better build one out of wood and see if we can make it work. Because if we don't have R2-D2, George doesn't have a movie. C-3PO was based on Metropolis, on Maria in Metropolis, made in 1927. We knew we could make that better. This is, what, 40 years later. But um, I hired a prop maker and set designer, kind of man who did everything, Bill Harmon, who did all the Monty Python films, you know, and they, they really had no money. I mean, they couldn't even afford horses. They had coconut shells banging together. So... Bill made us a wooden R2-D2. Um, he couldn't make the top, couldn't make the, the round one. He told me to go and find something. I went to a scrapyard and found a lamp top from an old light that had been discarded and thrown in the trash heap, and that fitted. And I got some air nozzles from an old um, facility. I bought a few bits of junk to stick in to make it look a little bit better. He's got arms on the front, little ones that move like that. Bill said, I can't do that. They gave me a piece of wood and a pen knife, and I went and carved those at home at night. And um, we built it round Kenny Baker, who was three foot eight and strong enough we knew to work it. And he was a comedian, so he had a sense of humor. And we got it eventually to walk three places. Um, and that was probably the most auspicious moment on Star Wars. He couldn't do it, by the way. I bought with the junk I bought I found an old fighter pilot's hardest and I thought oh that might be useful bought it you know this was like 
five shillings or something. And we'd nailed Kenny's boots inside the wooden mocker and he couldn't move it. We um, stapled this harness inside so Bill could put R2-D2's body like a rucksack and hold the weight. And that's when he did three steps and fell over. <laughs> we were watched by George and Gary and, and we, it was like the relief was immense because we knew, okay, this can work. That's how it started and that's how it began and that's how it was all the way through, really. <laughs> um, I couldn't, you know, I, I didn't know if I was on the right track of what I was doing. I, you know, George was a student like we were. We were all so young. Right. Um, so I decided my biggest kind of... Um, thing that I didn't like about sci-fi movies was the weapons. They would just beep and they would not do and they looked light and they were plasticky. So I had this idea if I used real weapons and adapted them, A, I could afford it because I had so little money in my budget to do all the weapons. So I went, I knew the owner of the, the one um, weapons facility in London. They hired, you could, you could, um, supply guns for the entire World War II sequences, everything. They had a huge supply. I found a gun that I loved and I thought was a sci-fi gun anyway, which was the Sterling submachine gun. And I got some T-strips, stuck it around with super glue, found this old gun sight and stuck it on the top. And I thought, you know what, this looks quite interesting. And it's just adapted enough to give it a look, but it could fire. You could fire single shots and mm -hmm. get a little flame out the end of smoke. And then, you know, based on George's kind of description of Han Solo as a Western cowboy, a gunslinger, I found this German Mauser with a wooden stock, which I love the design of. And I did the same to that. I stuck on a range finder on the top, a few bits on it. I found a, a thing on the end that went on a different machine gun that hid the flash. So they wouldn't get spotted in the war, in the, which is World War Two. Added that on and called George over, and I, I told John, "You better come because if I'm on the wrong track here, I'm just going to get fired and removed." And George loved them; they could fire, they could hold, they were weighty, everything, and that set again the precedent for the entire movie for me with George. He he entrusted me from then on. I built everything on Star Wars. He never refused anything. Everything I gave him, he accepted and went on to the film. Um, and he stayed with me and got super glue on his fingers because we made Princess Leia's gun in the facility as a third gun, and we stuck all that together. That's the opening beginning of what I did and how this happened. And I, I think, honestly, from, from a young age, I always thought outside the box. I never thought conventionally. When I when I got to work on Oliver with John Box, the first film making tea, I was in art come from art school. I had hair down my shoulders, Cuban boots, jeans. I was in cinemas every weekend watching Kurosawa and Fellini and Pasolini and Truffaut. I was in a room full of ties and suits and short hair, being told off, get your hair cut. You know, this is a job. You can't yeah, forget all those arty films. Get on the drawing board get and knuckle down and, and be conventional. And I thought, you know what, I'm not having any of that. Mm -hmm. And, and um, 
John Box supported me all the way through because he knew that I could draw and I could do things. So that's a kind of potted history of um, what I'm doing. <laughs> well, you know, I watched the, uh, I've been watching the TV series on Disney Plus. Yes. About, about ILM. Yes. And it's interesting because all you guys were young. Yes. And because, I mean, that's, I think that's what you needed, though, because this was so cutting edge. You know, and you guys wanted, like you say, uh, sci-fi was so plastic looking. You know, yes. and, and then this is, this is, I mean, it takes young minds to create this stuff, you know, to, to, to do that cutting edge stuff. And um, like you talk about, you know, how you guys were doing it. It's with, with I'm going to say paper clips and then glue. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And yeah. And that's, you know, that's what, that's what you guys did. And I just find it so amazing that you came up with the stuff you did. Well, in the, in the documentary, you know, I've just finished the galaxy built on hope. I explained something about George and his ability. George, I realized hired people who had just enough experience to do the job, but we weren't tired or we weren't like most of the people I've worked with say, no, you can't do that. No, this is how we do it. It works. We never did that because George always wrote in every film, all six movies, he wrote what couldn't be done. Mm -hmm. And he put it into your hands and said, do it. He never came and told us this is what you do or what you have to do. He just had a very powerful instinct. So it's the same with the ILM boys. It's the same with everybody when you look at right the way through with Ben Burt. Ben Burt, who did this sound that, you know, is is iconic on Star Wars. He was a student. George hired him and any other composer of sound design would have gone out and done spacey sounds. What did he do? He went to the zoo for a year with his tape recorder and recorded pigs and bears and walruses and played them backwards and made an organic soundtrack. And I, I, I liken that to what we did. And what I wanted to do was make something organic mm -hmm. that the audience wouldn't question when they saw it. It felt familiar. And I think that was what broke the mold with Star Wars and continued then for every science fiction film. Even James Cameron does the same now. Right, right. When you were decorating the sets, and, and, and like you say, you, you gave them an old look, you know, to to kind of match like like old west stuff. How how were you able to do that? I mean, to, to get to the props and everything that you needed to do, did you have to go search for everything, or how'd that work? There was no props. And there were no, there was none, and there were no higher places you could go and get stuff. So. And when I'd broken down the script and saw what I needed, first of all, John Barry saved the day by taking George to, Tata to Tunisia and said, here's Tatooine. And it was. All I had to do was put bits of old junk and pieces of machinery into that old architecture. So mm -hmm. I was kind of pondering, how on earth am I going to dress this? Because the other thing was, any sci-fi film has about nine months to a year prep. Fox greenlit this movie. They actually gave us the money to move into the studios in uh, Elstree. On, we moved in on January the 6th. We were shooting at the end of March. 
in Tunisia with robots with everything in place, the sand crawler, I mean, everything. So A and one I saw, there was no time. I couldn't go the usual way and design something, give it to the shops, and they would put it to plasterers and whatever. And I got this idea, you know, um, why don't, and I was researching submarines and bombers and things, and I thought, well, why don't I just go and buy airplane junk? Mm-hmm. And because George had made THX, when I walked in and suggested the idea, I just go and buy a load of old aeroplane junk. Any other American director would have said, you know, thank you very much, Cheryl. Well, <laughs> goodbye. You go off and do whatever you want. They said, you know what, try it. So they flew me around aircraft junkyards in a little prop plane. And I found mountains of this stuff, mountains, literally. I could buy parts of airplanes. I was buying jet engines from Rolls-Royce. I was buying undercarriages, everything you could think of for hardly any money. And I think what sums it up, when I was, the, the, we had a big property master, Frank Bruton, who was one of the very few people on that film who understood me and who supported me. I'm so he said, what do we do with the prop room? I said, get rid of all this stuff. Just empty it out. I'm bringing in all this junk. Just get some metal shelving. And we'll, I'll teach the prop boys how to break it down because it has to be correctly layered into the set. So you can't just randomly do it. This, like, 16-wheeler backs in. There were piled jet engines <laughs> and roped on everything. I was so young. He, he called me boy. And I was standing next to this thing backed in, and I just heard this voice. I didn't look at him. He said, you know, you're a mad boy. (laughs) And I I said, well, (laughs) probably, because I didn't know it would work. But but bless him. He said, all right, boy, T's on in my office. You come there and tell me what you want. And I explained we needed tools, and we broke it down. That's how we did it. And we, we layered these amazing pieces of airplane junk into the Millennium Falcon sets. I was getting my buyers to buy me old junked camera parts, anything that was thrown out. I had skips being brought in and I would go through it and anything interesting I looked and saw, I would keep. And, um, you know, the, the one of the things that I did was Luke's binder bin. So again, I, couldn't make one. So I found an old camera part, a piece of one. And I thought, well, that looks like a good body. And I found another part that had a flip up top. I stuck that on with super glue. I found another piece. And then I thought, you know what, this could be the binder bins. And it was heavy. I needed two um, lenses because I thought I'd better let the audience have a kind of inkling of what this is. So if I put two camera lenses on the front, it'll look like a viewing thing. I went to the camera hire store in London where we hired everything, bought my two lenses, and then I said, David, do you have anything here? I've got to make a weapon for this Jedi. Um, Do you have anything I could look at? I, I can't find anything suitable. And it was getting late now. They wanted Luke's lightsaber done. And he said, oh, go and look under that shelf. There's a load of boxes under there. I haven't looked at those for a long time, but have a look what's in. And the first one I pulled out, I opened it. And there, like this was my second holy grail moment of there were three Graflex handles that I just took one out and thought, oh, here it is. 
I could have used it just like that. It was beautiful. You know, when you have an object designed for something else, this was a tube that held the batteries that clipped onto a press camera from the 40s. And I raced back to EMI. I had a bit of the T-strip left over from my blaster, the Stormtroopers, stuck that round to make a handle. I'd that morning broken down. I, I got an old... Um, Texas instrument calculator and I unscrewed it, took it apart, found the bubble strip that magnified the numbers and um, enlarged them. And it fitted perfectly in the clip and it made it into something else. And I just called George over and I said, I, I think I found the lightsaber and he held it and just smiled. That That's the approval from George. Mm -hmm. we, we added a D-ring on the end because it had to um, go onto Luke's belt in the desert. That was all I changed to it. And I, I made several of those that are the originals that were used by Luke. Um, and what we, we had no time to meet the art department. My office was full of junk, but I had a, a frit because we spent, I mean, I didn't have a day off in, in almost a year, and I worked seven days from seven in the morning to mostly 10 at night mm -hmm. to get this done. So in my office, I had a little fridge with some milk. I had tea bags, Tetley tea bags, which the entire British film industry ran on at that time. There was no coffee and McBitty's chocolate biscuits. <laughs> so we would all meet in my office at 7.30 sharp and they'd all make tea. And we were discussing it and I said, you know, I was doing art installations and we, we were using front projection paint and it was glowing in the art exhibits we were doing. And they said, oh, that's a good idea. Why don't you try it? So I made a second handle for the lightsaber the special effects boys drilled the end out. They put a little motor in it with a long um, a wooden dowel. Mm -hmm. They made the motor slightly off center so it vibrated instead of just turning. And we painted it and blow me, it picked up light on the set. Not enough in the end, George had to rotoscope it, but it was there. You can see it in the, in the behind the scenes. Um, Luke's holding it when... He fires it up when he first gets it with Obi-Wan Kenobi. And then they were used extensively, the sti sticks, when the fight with Obi-Wan Kenobi and, um, and uh, Darth Vader. And there was a decision made with George that they should, the light blade should never pass through each other. It should behave like a samurai sword, which is what it was based on. So my sticks, Alec Guinness and Dave Prowse, could hit each other against the sticks. They broke so many in this fight. It was a fairly simple fight. But um, this is how we did things. Everything was done like this, you know. Um, something that also, is, I mean, there's many stories in, in, in the galaxy built on hope because what George was so frantically busy trying to get this movie made, rewriting the script, trying to do it. There was no inkling of what went on behind the scenes. John Barry died sadly on Empire Strikes Back very young. David West Reynolds, who was the head of literature at Lucasfilm, just hounded me and said, "You, hey, you've got to write this down. This is a legacy. No one knows this stuff except for you. So I wrote Cinema Alchemist. Then they bugged me and said, there's not one making of that handles this, even the official ones, so you've got to make it. So 
with the same spirit that we made the first um, Star Wars movie, a, a company here in Canada, a JC Ideal Entertainment, and an Los Angeles studio called Wardle Studios, they, between them, gave me just enough money to do this and get it made. <laughs> and, of course, then COVID struck. We were landlocked in Canada. You couldn't get in or out. And <laughs> so I had to rethink the entire meal, uh, the entire way I was doing it to mm -hmm. try to do something interesting. Again, I, I just put my same kind of thinking cap on and I found a, a virtual studio in Toronto that were making children's films. And I had Paul Bateman took... Um, he became a huge ally of Ralph Macquarie, which who painted the original six paintings that Star Wars was based on. And I really wanted to give Ralph Macquarie his place in my documentary because, you know, the, the Guillermo del Toro and, and Gareth Edwards, who are both interviewed in it, both are saying this man's a genius. He's, you know, he's never got the full acclaim, I think. So Paul painted me sets as if, Ralph Macquarie painted them using game technology, using about 37 layers. They were all pieced together. So I'm instead of sitting in a in a studio just talking, I'm underneath the Millennium Falcon in the desert. I'm cool. in complete deserts. I'm inside the Millennium Falcon. We're in libraries. I was in all sorts of places. So again, you know, you just have to. And the last line in my book is. Don't let anyone tell you you can't, you can. And I think that philosophy has kind of um, been part of my entire career. Not easy sometimes, but far more rewarding. Mm -hmm. Here's a question about CGI and all this stuff like you were just talking about. You know, with you being coming up from that other part of it where it was all hands-on, do you think, and I know for, for these young guys, it's exciting for them because that's what they've done. They've done their video games, you know, all right. their lives, and it's great to create this. It's a totally different generation. But do you think, like, you know, as far as the satisfaction of building something like that and actually seeing it in use, it kind of takes away from it? I, I think, you know, I call it now the toy box is opened. We can do anything. Since now they had young Luke in um yes. boba fett yeah since that you realize it's it's now open mm -hmm. sesame it's done we now the alchemy is there we can do whatever we like um but you know ilm still use models uh, james cameron uses models people still stick to that because there is something organic in that that does bleed into the screen you know, you know, you look at DC and Marvel movies, and those no one does them better than Hollywood. They're amazing. You know, you go and you get your fix, and but you know that a man can't fly like that. Right. You know all of those things, so you accept it, and it's a huge vision. But with a film like Star Wars and even like Avatar, I think he he broke the mold with that when the first one came out. Mm -hmm. Certainly, Rogue One. When I look at it, and in JJ. JJ was extensively using models in both of his Star Wars movies. There, there is something that bleeds through onto the screen, and the satisfaction for us um, is incredible. And 
I met Christopher Nolan um, at a screening of Dunkirk. He said, I've got to talk to you because in your days, the set decorator did everything. You had to handle a robot, everything. And I said, yeah, everything. He said, now it's all broken up into compartments. Mm -hmm. But the satisfaction of being part of a movie that you are such a crucial kind of part of in creating the whole vision for the movie when you're doing it you're on the set the actors you know we built the millennium falcon half of it but the actors are running jumping in it they're playing around in it i know they're they're used to it um doing it with green screen but things happen accidents happen dust piece of light happens on a model shoot and it becomes magic I guess eventually they'll build all these accidents into a computer so you get the same thing probably but um I think you know and it it, it, it's George and, and here's the thing George only ever did his special effects to tell the story it was never done for any other reason than he needed a way to tell how to you know the death run the death star run at the end the bombing run it's all done with miniatures um and i think you know obviously now with the mandalorian and the volume and the, the new stages now the actors are actually experiencing it all and this is in truth that's where george wanted to go on skywalker he wanted to build a digital studio like that and he was too far ahead of his time again and i think if that had been available i think he would have probably directed the last three himself but it wasn't there yet it's there now mm -hmm. um but even then you know that they are creating stuff on sets and i i think i you know i lecture and i do stuff with young students and i say get a story tell the story first how can i tell this story if you can do it with your iphone do it but don't say oh i'll get in post and i'll do all this stuff afterwards mm -hmm. that's not the way to tell a story you need the heart of it and that is the difference like to me with star wars you know george george created a myth for the entire world to believe in and it's real everybody believes it that's there's, there's been no saga of films like this ever that's connected to a globe, and I don't think there ever will be again. The circumstances at that time in the 70s and was ripe for this to happen, and George plugged into that universal kind of subconscious. Absolutely. You know, I was just thinking what you were saying that was, some, like you say, some things change, some things don't. When you look at the Grogu puppet, and you look at the way they did with what they did with Yoda. Yes. Even though there's parts of Grogu that are electronic, they still have to puppeteer him to move his arms. They have to puppeteer him to flip, you know, like, like, like if he does a flip. You know, it's still done by hand, just like it was with Yoda. So it's interesting how they how they're incorporating the old ways in with the new ways. Yeah, and you know, I I directed George had me direct second unit for him on on Return of the Jedi and um on the Phantom Menace and on Return of the Jedi we had uh, Frank Oz on set puppeteering Yoda just to see <laughs> the actors like Samuel Jackson, they're talking to Yoda and he's talking back. There was an interaction. There wasn't a, a blue ball on a stick. Right. 
and you know it's magic this stuff and and you know when you get you know somebody a master like frank oz um they come alive and they still do and i i still think now i, I can tell the difference between the puppet ones and the cgi ones and there's something about the puppet ones i you know and I, I don't look back. You can tell from my whole career and what I've said now. I'm the one looking forwards. I was pushing with George to go digital when Phantom Menace, we were trying out the cameras. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm not somebody who looks back. I try to advance, but not for the sake of storytelling or for an audience or, you know, to, to kind of be authentic, really. I think, like, even when I was building sets, you know, what I always thought was breathtaking was once you get the idea <clears throat> and you actually put it together and build it, and the first time you walk out on the set and you actually see the fruits of your labor and you see what it looks like. Yes. It takes your breath away because you realize, oh, my God, I did this. <laughs> you know, I put this together. You know, and I, it, it's something else that I kind of talked about as well in the documentary that, you know, it got to a crisis, Star Wars. The, the, it's no secret. The crew thought this was a pile of rubbish. They mm. thought it was a children's fairy story. would never see the light of day. George was a very quiet, young American director. He didn't have that shouting American presence. You know, I'm in charge. He didn't do that. He got on with his job. So the DP was awful to him through the whole way through the shoot. And everybody, and it got to a crisis point when they caught Anne and Ladd over and there was a very serious meeting went on without George and you can imagine what the tone of that meeting was but when I think Alan Ladd walked around the studios with George and George was telling him what he was going to do he hadn't edited one frame that the, the English editor was doing a conventional way of wide shot mid shot and George said I don't shoot it like that I'm not going to do it like that and it looked terrible um, but you know what? When Alan Ladd walked into that stage and there was full scale, half of the Millennium Falcon, I watched people come in and <gasps> their breath stopped. And when you walked inside that hold area for the ship, mm -hmm. I, I think when he looked at all of this and looked at the sets that we were doing, the Death Star interiors, I think he thought, you know, this kid is doing something right. Mm -hmm. And I think that helped the sets that were built then. However, we struggled to make them with plastic stuff. With the Death Star was sheets. We found a vac former that was a primitive early version of it, and we could print out sheets, and they were stapled on the wood. But it created the scale, you know. And I, I think all of that kind of helped to convince Alan Ladd to continue with George and to finish the movie, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, when you built this stuff, now here's my other question too, because I know stuff tends to be flimsy because it is, it's not, you know, it's not like permanent wood stuff. How, how flimsy was, was the stuff? I mean, if, if they bumped into a bat, into a wall or something, was, was it going to vibrate or, or was it put together better than that? Well, it, it had the conventional wooden frames, which were pretty strong. And then, yeah, if you banged into the Death Star um, <laughs> panels that we'd put on it, then they would shake a bit. But um, there wasn't much of that in the film, so it was all right. There was one instance whereby the special effects 
boys who were supposed to be doing the radio control and R2D2, they, they hardly worked. And in fact, before we went to Tunisia, John Barry called Les Dilly, the art director, and I into his office and said, listen, this radio control is not going to work. John's promising George everything's great and it's wonderful. It's not going to work. Build a little tiny, um, build a fiberglass lightweight version of it, exactly duplicated, that we could pull on fishing wire. <laughs> and the first morning on set, the R2-D2 was the first thing that was shot. We did the lineup of Uncle Owen buying the robots. R2-D2 went crashing into another one. It was mayhem. <laughs> and um, Gary Kurt said, <laughs> can you get yours out? He was the only person who knew. And from then on, most of the running on three legs, we did pulling it on a fishing wire. George just cut enough to put it together. Um, but I, I think it, it um, the, the, the Death Star was really those interiors it was pretty strong because the garbage incinerator i had to do filled with junk they were walls that had to compress and we had actors in there in the water right. they were built pretty solidly um the you know the the sand crawl the the um i'm trying to think which otherwise they were kind of built out of plaster to mimic the Tunisian um, architecture so they were pretty strong actually mm -hmm. we didn't change much in Tunisia we, we put some more domes on because they were existing and they looked sci-fi they were wonderful I, I show in the documentary how we go back and David West Reynolds found that he went back in 95 and found where we shot and he found the dome was upside down with goats to drink out of it have water in it <laughs> And he found the door to the cantina we built, which was solid. It was a wooden door. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was holding the chickens in. It was a door <laughs> for the local guys' chickens. Uh, so they stood the test of time. They're now in um, the Ranchi Overwhelm Museum. Steve yeah. Sandwit has them all. So, um, you know, my aeroplane junk was all solid. It was real. So what I'd encrusted the Millennium Falcon with, that was pretty solid, actually. It was quite weighty. And, and the cockpit itself. <laughs> it's just, it's incredible to me. I mean, you know, when people don't realize who aren't in the industry, what a set really is. No. Or how they're built. Because everything on TV uh, TV and, and movies look, look so different. They don't realize that, you know, that some of these walls are, are made out of, of uh, I'm not going to say canvas. I forget my mind. I got a brain fart. But, you know, the, know. the, the materials they're made out of. You know, and how just the, by by shutting the door when like like a day of the yeah, walk, they will wobble. Yeah, and shut the door. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's true. Well, ours were pretty pretty strong because they 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 had to be to support everything. You know, and really, George, because of the budget, there were only really sets in EMI and Tunisia locations. So that's really all we had to deal with. We weren't stretched going all over the place to different places yes tunisia we went from one end of the country to the other but um i think once i dressed all the junk in we it, you know the, when they walk into the cantina mm -hmm. um there's a crashed spaceship it's the size of a boeing 747 now 
with very little money, always the question is, what on earth was that doing there? Well, when John found the location, which was perfect, there was one huge olive tree, and it completely spoiled this dusty spaghetti Western look. So John sketched this huge spaceship. <laughs> they built a wooden former to put it on and I took my Death Star panels because they were cheap and light and I packed a load of them onto the truck to Tunisia and I got up on ladders and I stapled them on and got a blowtorch and I burnt them down and made them look like distressed metal and then once I'd sprayed it with the sand mixed into some paint mm -hmm. it became a crash spaceship so this thing no one's really pointed it out except now I talk about it in the documentary but there it was, this size of a, of a Boeing. That actually set a precedent for every Star Wars movie. If you look, there is always crash spaceships now right up to The Last Skywalker. There's always, you know, Ray is living in one. Uh, mm -hmm. That's kind of set a, a, an interesting way to show these planets have a history things have gone on here and it's like oh there were wars here things happened you know all those things i think help to give you that overall impression of a real place rather than somewhere that's just a built sci-fi set mm -hmm. i think that's the secret you know that's what i did and i'd always cover stuff in oil and and beat it and dent it look at c3po Maria was a beautiful gold robot. We banged a hole in his head, so he had a dent in the head. And R2-D2 is well beaten up. Luke's Landspeeder is really dented. He's, you know, like a little sports car he had that he's crashed quite a few times. I Do think... The well, yeah. question I have really quick for you is, you guys originated the these sets. You originated the Millennium Falcon, you, you, know, you know, the, the X-Wing fighters and all that stuff. Do you think when they went to make, to create the sequel trilogy. Was it difficult for them to do it? I mean, yeah, of course they have CGI to do it, but you've got the new set decorators that are looking at your designs and looking at what you did. Do you think it was it was it was difficult for them to do that, or was it easier for them because you had already done it? I think because we'd already done it. I mean, when I when I first joined the crew on Phantom Menace to be the second unit director, the first thing they did, they said, the designer wants to talk to you. And I went down and talked to him. He said, what do I do? I don't understand. George doesn't talk. He doesn't say anything. What? He was panicking. And I said, listen, you, you design whatever you think and you show George. He'll say yes or no. And he'll suggest an alternative. That's all you've got to do. You just keep throwing it in there. Same with the set decorator. He said, I don't know how to deal with this. And um, he said, because you've already done it all. And I said, well, we did it. And George approved it. And it created Star Wars. So that's what you follow. I, and certainly for ILM, you know, I mean, they, they were in the same boat as us. And you can see it on these documentaries. I mean, they... There were no computers. There was no way to do repeat passes. There was no way to do anything. And they, all of their first budget to do the shots was on building machinery to actually be able to do what George had written, and which they did successfully. Mm -hmm. um, so once they'd done that, for sure, it got much easier for them. Um, there was, Rick McCullum told me on Phantom Menace, they needed tons of aeroplane scrap to duplicate what I did. Because of that, and 
art directing alien, I'd set up a whole industry of scrap in Britain. I didn't know this. It was so expensive. It was cheaper for Rick to go and get it chosen in the um, graveyards in Texas and fly it in a plane to Tunisia. That was cheaper than going to rent it in the UK at the time. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Now you brought up a good point. You were involved in another film that I didn't watch for years. I can tell you that right now. That scared the hell out of me. And with Alien, how did you, I mean, how did they come to you and, and, and ask you about that, you know, to, to do set work or, or whatever you were doing, uh, that, that from, from concept to film? I was um, actually on Life of Brian, the Monty Python film. Uh -huh. We were, and, and, I knew Ridley and Tony because I used to do commercials with them and I knew them very well. Um, and so I wasn't free. So he'd got Michael Seymour designing it. Michael was a much more of a commercials designer and the set decorator was a dear friend of mine, but he did films like um, period films only, big ones that he did, Howard's End, things like that, they had no idea about buying scrap or anything. I was on Life of Brian. The financier read the script two weeks before I was flying out to design it with Terry Gilliam, and he cancelled the film. I was called to London, and they said, look, we are going to get the money. We want you to do it, but we've gone down for a bit. Ridley phoned the office that day and said, Roger, get your backside down to Shepparton. I need you down here now. I drove down to Shepparton, read the script in 90 minutes because it's the script is incredible. I was in a room where there were the original Giga paintings around the wall. You can imagine for me, this was like, whoa. And Ridley was doing his storyboards, which he's one of the top storyboard artist in the world he's unbelievable he can draw a unicorn upside down for your perspective i mean he's amazing um he said can you just take over and i did i went down the set decorator ian who did howard's end grabbed me on the stage hugged me and said thank god you're here i you know i dip curtains in tea to make them look old i can't do this stuff so i went and got and what Ridley basically said to me was, I want a space truck, used truck that would be going backwards and forwards with mining stuff. What really I'd set the precedent in the Millennium Falcon in the hold. That's what he wanted, but a more army kind of military version of it. So I just did the same thing. We, I, I was art directing it and I was put in charge of creating the interior look of the whole Nostroma. Mm -hmm. um, and I went and bought a ton of scrap and I, I set to work. And again, this was the first R-rated sci-fi movie. So there was very little faith that it would work. Oh. Ridley was a new director. He'd only done The Duelist. So the budget was slashed. It was way under what it should have been. But um, using the same techniques and everything, we kind of made it work, you know, and I, uh, uh, what they, what I did, Ridley wanted to um, screen test Sigourney Weaver, and it, most screen tests are uh, with a white wall and a plant. Ridley wanted to show Fox because he had to convince them she was the right person for the role, not the star they were wanting. 
So I built a piece of the corridor for him using drain pipes and scrap and everything. And we built that section and had her in there. And I made a weapon with the special effects boys for her to carry. I think that he was right. That whole kind of look of her in that ship and everything convinced Fox to go with Sigourney Weaver. Um, and from then on in, we, I just, I brought the team over. I trained on Star Wars, three of them, and they came and they did all the interiors with me to get the whole thing to look like Ridley wanted it. Mm -hmm. And um, it was incredible because they, they built it on two stages joined together in Shepparton so that Ridley wanted those shots at the beginning where you're like the Mary Celeste, the ship is empty of people, but it's alive. And you walked in a little gap in the set and you were in, you couldn't get out. You had to walk in through the bridge, through the everywhere, right the way through the hold areas until you had to come back and come out of the hole again. It was an extraordinary experience. And again, I just saw people coming to visit who just thought, wow, you've got a ship somehow. Where did you get this from? <laughs> it's all so real, you know, that, that, that's always been my mantra. It, it, Nothing can look out of place. Nothing can spoil the overall reality of an audience is looking at and they can believe it, they accept it, then they're not questioning it. So you're not losing your audience. Is it hard? I mean, like you went from Star Wars, to, you know, working on the ships with that. Is it hard to, or do you have a lot of um, aid from the director about what, what their vision is for these ships? Because, I mean, like you say, you, you, you would be borrowing ideas from the Millennium Falcon too. And, you know, you don't want people to see that on screen. So you, is it hard to go in and, and rethink everything like that? In truth, it was very easy because we had Ralph McQuarrie and, you know, Ralph is a genius. He's, and they're still using, by the way, this Ralph spent his entire life painting things, illustrations. They're still using them now on the Melander, on the um, Mandalorian, on Boba Fett. There's still his designs. Doug Chang is pulling them out. Oh, there, we've got it already designed. On Alien, we had Ron Cobb, who's absolute brilliant. And I mean, I would go to Ron and say, Ron, you know, we've got to put in the hold something that would be able to power around the planet and do this and do that. He would draw it, not only draw and illustrated it, but he'd tell you which engines they were and what type of Rolls Royce this and that, everything detailed. Really, absolutely brilliant. So I was always in his office just saying, what about this? What about that? And, and the entire film comes down to Ridley because he has that vision and he knew what he wanted. You know, and the, the first bridge designs, they were done by various different artists. They looked a bit like Star Trek bridge, some of them. Ridley wanted it like an old bomber that was crusted he took the ceiling that Michael Seymour had designed and done. He took it down three times, pulled it down to much to the chagrin of Michael Seymour, but he wanted that claustrophobia of the ceiling, like you are in a chopper or a bomber. It's mm -hmm. all around you. He wanted that feeling when he was shooting. Um, so, you know, it really comes down to Ridley and his vision. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I just, I just find, and, and after, like I said, my experience was, wasn't as, as extensive as yours, not even close. 
but I always admire people like, you know, folks like you who can go in and do that stuff. And, um, you, you, you've been rewarded for your task, Star Wars and, you know, aliens and, and, and you, and you, and you deserve it. You deserve all, all the, all the work you put in. It's, it's funny, isn't it? Because again, writing the book and I had to analyze where does all this come from? And I did then flash back to my youth when I was seven or eight years old and I took my dinky toys. I was always painting them and making them look more real. I, I had a little camera and I'd go in the garden and make tracks and I'd put them into landscapes. And I realized I was even doing it then as a young child. So, you know, I, I, I do, again, on the documentary, I go through... I was born two years before the war ended. Mm -hmm. And um, where I was born, Croydon, the, um, the, the geniuses in the British um, government, Secret Service, they had got the Germans to believe that the distance the flying bombs needed to fly to hit central London actually was Croydon. It wasn't central London. So as a little community outside on it's London, it's part of it. Right. We had like 190 or something flying bombs dropped on us. So the only story I ever heard, no one would talk about the war. My parents, nobody, no relations, nothing. But the only story an aunt told me was that when I was six months old, my father was fighting in the war in Java, so he didn't see me till I was two years old. Um, a flying bomb blew the front of the house. The windows all blew in. I was covered in red, and they thought I'd bought it. And um, <laughs> my mother had a sacred bottle of ketchup, which, you know, we would get one egg a week. You had these rations. There was one bottle of ketchup. It had exploded and covered me in ketchup. But what I observed at a time, and I wouldn't remember it as a conscious memory, but I was in streets that were bombed out, ruined everywhere, you know, and I, and I think somehow in the subconscious that probably affected how I see things in life. Mm -hmm. um, who knows, you know, where it all comes from. And I was born with this kind of stubborn ingenuity that I wanted to do things differently, and I, I was you know that my path through making movies led that way and i was destiny kind of put john barry and myself and george together mm -hmm. and ridley um together into creating something that really did change cinema absolutely absolutely you changed you changed you guys changed sci-fi and what it is now i mean if it hadn't been for you we'd still be at plastic sets <laughs> yeah, so so then I had to take two years. So thanks to David West Reynolds, I had to take two years off and write this book, and I wrote six hundred and thirty pages for Cinema wow. Alchemist. And then John Rinsler, who was the head of literature and a brilliant writer, he edited for me down to the three hundred pages we published. Um, and the same really with this documentary because you know everyone said nowadays people want to watch this on phones they need to see what you did this is a legacy so um and we decided first up that all the fans in the world they buck the trend star wars fans they want blu-rays they want them at home on the shelf everything like that so we decided only to release it through the website with on blu-ray and dvd 
um, so people could get it. And then eventually it'll go to a streamer and it's mm -hmm. got everything in it, two and a half hours of, it's got the making of, it's all combined as a, as a fan special. When it goes to streamer, it'll obviously be cut down. Mm -hmm. That's fine. But we wanted to kind of start with a fan special. Fantastic. But, yeah. This hour has gone by. Oh, already? There oh, you my go. Gosh, yeah. oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's been wonderful talking to you. You know, it's, it's been a blast. And, and it's just so fascinating to talk to you. Like I said, I've been in this stuff, do, doing stuff hands-on for years and years and years. And you hear it from someone as professional as you who's, who's won Academy Awards. And, and this, it's just, it's just fantastic to talk to somebody and, and pick your brain a little bit. Well, um, you, you, you know, it's something... See, we all get subject. You hear it. You hear these big stars. You hear Justin Bieber. Just follow your dreams. You'll get there. And mm -hmm. all the big actors, everybody, that's wrong information. Because not everybody is a Justin Bieber. Mm -hmm. What the information that I spread is that the hero's journey is your own journey. You do whatever you do to the best of your ability, and that's success. That's all you need to do. If you find that and you enjoy it like you do, that's a huge success to me. And I applaud you for doing that. Um, I happen to do it on a, you know, we, we sort of got paid to do right, it. Right. Films, but we kind of did it on a bigger scale, but it doesn't matter. You know, it's like, you know, if you're at home, you're building Lego models. You're, you're then creating your own Lego. My, I've got yeah. an eight-year-old yeah. son. Right. Eight -year He's now creating. He's bringing into me amazing robots and stuff. He's putting it together himself. That's what I would like to attribute as a mentor to the world, that that's what everyone should find their way to do. Absolutely. How can people find you? Um, well, galaxybuiltonhope.com is the website. That's where the Blu-rays are. You can go through there. I do have, I think there's a Instagram page with my name on it, and there's a Galaxy page, Galaxy Built on Hope Instagram page. Um, and... I, I'm sort of on Facebook or Twitter, <laughs> sort of, but I think probably Instagram does it, but the website will do it. There is contact in there and you can go through to the PR and um, social media people and they obviously connect in because, you know, I'm working and doing a lot of stuff. So that's the way to do it. And I, I'm hoping we'll do some lectures later on David West Reynolds and I, I'm hoping we can talk to people about how we did all of this. Absolutely. Roger, thank you so much. I would love to have you on later on to talk more to pick your brain. I think it's great. We only, we, we only touched on a couple things, you know, in your career. So if you're willing to come on, I'll get a hold of your PR people later on and we'll get you back on, sir. Anytime. I, I enjoy these, you know, and I want to give back. It's like, to me, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a given process. So, you know, and I, I, I thank the two financiers again. That's you know, uh, Rita Shadow and Stephen Near. They they put faith in me that I could make this with a very limited budget. So I got it done, and we've got it made, and it's out there now. And there's proof. There it is in a box, and um, that's a legacy for Star Wars because it's growing. This is not getting smaller. I mean, the just the younger generations. So it's they all look and see 
these giant Hollywood movies. Well, when you go back to the beginning, it was a humble group of a few kind of cinema revolutionaries. And that's what's important, I think, for people to understand. I agree. I agree. All right, Roger. Well, thank you so much. Not at all. Thank you. Have nice to meet you. And you. And I want to see one of your models now. Oh, I'll do that. I'll, do that. I'll, I'll, I'll be in touch and show you. I will. I will. Okay. I'm going to be dragging stuff out. So, you know. Okay. <laughs> no bodies. No right. bodies. Thank you very much. Have a, good evening. Have a good day. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Well, that was a wild factor, I'll tell you. And uh, I enjoyed that thoroughly. And I hope he did too. I, like I said in the beginning, I was not a Star Wars fan. I was a Star Trek fan. I thought, and like he made a good point about uh, the studio thinking it was a children's story because that's what I thought. You know, honestly, I thought I thought the whole thing was was for kids, and so I was like, no, I don't want to watch it. You know, but like I said later on, I got into it, so it was great. Tomorrow we'll be back on at six thirty p.m. Pacific. Mark Muncy is going to be with us. Mark Muncy has written a series of books about the state of Florida and the weird things that go on in Florida. It's called when the main book is called Erie, Florida. So he um, has written these books. And so we're going to be talking to him at 6.30 PM tomorrow. I want to thank everybody for coming this morning. I really appreciate it. This is going to re-air later on this evening and, you know, for everybody that's at work right now, but uh, I want to thank everybody. If you're watching from Facebook, please hit that follow button. If you're watching from Twitter, same thing. If you're watching from Twitch, hit that follow button. If you're watching from TikTok, hit that follow button. And especially if you're watching from YouTube or you're going to be watching from YouTube, there's a little ghost down in the bottom right-hand corner with a magnifying glass and a Sherlock Holmes hat on. That is our mascot. We have a, we have more than 350 videos over there. And uh, the, that will take you, you know, the, that, that will give you access to what's coming up, what we have, and all that good stuff. And there's varying topics, like this topic today. I don't stick to ghost topics and stuff. I'm a journalist. I'm a photojournalist. I like mixing it up so you're going to see all kinds of topics so i think there's i think there's something over there for everybody so if you check it out uh you can also find us at californiahauntsradio.com the paranormal group at californiahaunts.org again i want to thank you guys for coming this morning it's early we're usually not on this early but it's early uh this is what you know <laughs> even for me I'm, I'm a night owl so it's like when i woke up i was like oh you gotta be kidding me but here i am but anyway again i want to thank you all for coming all right, now, something I, 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 you know, if you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. I am equal opportunity here at California House Radio. Actually, we are, sorry. And uh, we want to get the word out about this show. We think it's, uh, you know, we think it's a, a good product. And uh, YouTube doesn't give us any love, really, you know. But uh, it's getting better. And, I, again, last night I thanked everybody, and I want to thank everybody again. Our numbers are starting to really rise as far as our downloads on our, on our podcast version. And I, I just thank everybody out there all over the world who, who, are, who, who listen to us. I just thank you, thank you, thank you, because you're helping me raise the numbers. And, and that's, that's by hearing the show and sharing it and saying, hey, this little show here is pretty good. You know, why don't you listen to it? Or you might say, this little show is really crappy. Why don't you listen to it and laugh, right? Well, <laughs> whatever strikes you. But um, I, I want to thank everybody, and I, and I hope you keep, the, you keep that effort up. I mean, if one person shares with five people that they know, Okay, and those five people share with five people that they know. It becomes, it beca you know, it creates a snowball effect, and I think that's what's happening now. That snowball effect is, is, is coming in, you know, into play. So I really appreciate each and every one of you. Um, we got our first donation from France last week, 
that was that was that was really stoking exciting. I mean, that was awesome. Thank you very much to the fan and friends. You know, and I've had people help support us throughout the year. So uh, here comes my plea. This is the KVIE thing that I do every day. This show is funded out of my own pocket, just like the paranormal group is funded out of my own pocket. We don't get paid to investigate. We don't do that stuff, okay? I mean, if people want to donate after we're done and you know, we do a good job, they think, <laughs> then it's cool. But, I mean, we don't go out there and demand money to investigate or anything like that. So all this and all the paranormal group stuff is funded out of my pocket. So if the computer breaks, I got you know I have to pay to replace it. Headphones we just replaced this year, you know things like that that go wrong that have to be replaced. Just like travel for the paranormal team, equipment for the paranormal team, stuff like that. So if you could help me out a little bit because I love doing the show, I want to keep it on the air. You know we're on our we're 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 heading into our third year starting in September, and uh, I'm surprised we made it this long. <laughs> Talk about like he was talking about doing those movies on a shoestring budget. We do the show on a student a shoestring budget, okay? And uh, so I, you know, I'd appreciate some help if you could do it, you know, because I know money's tight for people. But I mean, it'd be great if you could. You can do that at PayPal.me at California Haunts, or you, if you're uncomfortable with PayPal, there's Venmo, okay? Just go to Venmo, type in California Haunts, and you're there. And it's just, it all goes into operating expenses for the show. It goes into operating expenses for the paranormal group so I, we can go out and help people. You know, we're not one of these groups that goes out and says, oh, you have a ghost. No, we go out to educate. That's what we do. So we're, gonna, we're not looking for just ghosts. We're looking for normal things that could be causing the issues. And that includes health issues. You might be on some kind of medications that might be having you hallucinate, things like that. You know what I mean? It's it. We're looking for all that stuff. Because if you don't, it's a disservice when you go out to see a client. All right. That being said, I'm going to shut up now because I have a couple more interviews that I'm taping today. And let me figure out what page I'm on here. And I do have his contact information for the website and for his documentary that's on that site. So I'll, I'll give you all that information and, and, and how to do this because I think it's going to be fascinating. And if you haven't seen it yet on Disney+, Plus. Do watch the, the TV series on ILM because that gives you a lot of insight, like he was talking about, as to how things were when George Lucas did Star Wars. But it also, and you know, not only that, it talks about aliens. It talks about all, all those other movies too that ILM has, has done work, you know, has been called on to do work on. So I mean, it, it, it all lumps in together, right? It all lumps in together. So anyway, here's his information. So you got a website of galaxybuiltonhope.com. And the video is Galaxy Built on Hope. And that was with Roger Christensen. Anyway, thank you guys. I will see you tomorrow night at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Have a good evening. And a day. Sorry, it's early. Have a good day and evening. Bye.